All right, everybody, welcome to Office Hours. I'm so excited to be here because Blaine got more sun than me this week. <laughs> he's out fishing, I bet you. Blaine, were you fishing this week? Where'd we go? Oh, no, he's frozen. He's so, he's so, he's so. Paul, you there? Yeah, yeah. we're here. We're oh, here. We hear you. <laughs> oh, there we go. That's what happens when you live on an island. Okay, um, we're bouncing around here. All right, there you are. Learn about learn.blainbartlett.com forward slash LMM. He is my mentor, mindset, mastermind, moving possibilities to profit, which is so essential to what Paul Epstein has been doing for years. He is yes. a best-selling author, keynote speaker, former NFL, NBA business executive. He's a podcast host uh, and, uh, you know, an unbelievable Paul Epstein speaks. His podcast is about uh, what leadership coaching founder of purpose labs, but yeah, you also have a book, the power of playing offense as the why coach and which really intrigues me because I play around with why all the time. I think yeah. much is wasted on why I'm a, what guy I apply my why <laughs> I, I apply my why I think, you know, we deny our why then we're in search of something we already have. And I'm looking for people to learn to uh, get rid of the interference between us with, between us and what we already have by applying that why. So I'm hoping that as a why coach uh, of <laughs> egos beyond belief, because you and I have played in the same spaces. No doubt. And I will tell you this in fairness to Blaine. I thought sports executives had and athletes had big egos. Uh, you know, the people who Blaine deals with, the world thought leaders and the corporate CEOs of Fortune 50 companies, uh, they put LeBron James and the rest of the crew to shame when it comes to you know, <laughs> and fear and fear, you know, oh, my goodness. So anyway, Paul, you know, through all all the years, what what is that common denominator that you've learned to be a why coach? Yeah. So to simplify, because when I even say the word purpose, it feels so big. It feels so out there. So many, many people feel out of touch. Like when, what is my life purpose is that million dollar question, billion dollar question. Right. And so for me, I really had to make it practical and accessible. And the way this all started, I'll give the very quick backstory is when I was head of sales and business development for the 49ers, we had a leadership offsite retreat and it changed my life. It changed my life because I left understanding my why I left with core values, and I started to activate those values as a lens and filter for how I showed up. Then I get back in the office, and some folks thought that I drank the secret punch because they said, you are just radiating with a different level of energy. What happened at that retreat? One person, five people, 10 people, 50 people in the 49ers organization later, I coached them individually to find their why. And the way I like to think about this is it's your compass. And there's inner workings of your compass and outer workings of your compass. And there's three components, who you are, what you stand for, and how you show up. The question is, are they aligned and are they connected? And so when folks called me the Y coach of the Niners, when I serve now inspiring purpose in others, which is my why, that's exactly the compass that we walk through. Because to me, it feels a lot more practical and accessible than, hey, go out there and find your why. Who's a better Who's a better salesperson, you or Al Guido? Yeah. Oh gosh, we go toe to toe. I'll tell you, we've shared some stages. I <laughs> I don't know. I'm gonna politically, I'm gonna say that's a tie. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's, he's <laughs> there you go. 
one of my good friends, but an excellent salesman. Him and Jake, Jake Randall's Al Guido and yourself. Yes. Uh, your legends, legends. Yeah, you sure. guys, your reputation precedes yeah. you. And I'm someone uh, who takes a science of sales since Dennis Waitley in uh, all the greats that I've learned from Zig Ziglar, the guys that nobody knows anymore uh, that have taught me uh, how to solution sell and ask the right questions. All right, my son burned frozen fish. What's going on? <laughs> Quick question. Well, yeah, we originally, uh, this this Thursday afternoon episode is, was originally titled Office Hours, The Soul of Business. Yeah, this right. This was mm. the Soul of Business episode. And what you're talking about, Paul, and I'm just intrigued here because for you personally, you found, I mean, you you you, you call it purpose, but you tapped into that spirit. And it, yep. what? Spirit is energetic. 100%. Frequency structure. And you tapped into that. And what I'm intrigued with is you were able to leverage your epiphany, so to speak, yeah. and take that to others so that they could connect with it. And, I've, and, I, and I know the 49er organization well enough to know that, yeah, it actually organizes a lot of its activity around the soul of the business, uh, so to speak. You know, that there, there's an energetic there that is, and the Seahawks have the same thing. You know, we, you know, yeah. I, I yeah, even though they're rivals on the field, the cultures Absolutely. have a lot of similarities. Agreed. Yep. Yeah. So that soul of the business, that soul of the individual, that that purpose. What's the mechanism by which you keep people connected and organizations connected? Oh, my frozen fish. So yeah. what's no, the mechanism? it's good. But I, I heard Blaine. Yeah, he was talking about what connects it and uh, whether at an individual level or a team or organizational level. And so for everybody listening out there. To me, the common denominator is values because while the why it can serve as a North star, which I think is great in blue skies, what happens in a year like 2020, what happens when you know what hits the fan and what I have found, whether you're a person, team or organization, the thing that actually changed my life was applying my core values as a lens and filter for all of the decisions that I make in life. I'm not talking about decisions of do you eat McDonald's or Burger King? I'm talking decisions of significance relative to relationships, relative to career, all of that. I, I seriously, David, this is kind of an interesting contract. My biggest value, the strongest one is impact. And so while many people look at my leap as this Jerry Maguire moment, it was actually one of the easiest decisions I ever made because with core value of impact, I said, can I create more impact inside of these four walls of the 49ers or of the sports industry or beyond. And when I leverage that construct, one of the easiest non-negotiable decisions, I knew at that point I had to get off the treadmill that I was on, but I needed my core values to serve as that lens. You know, Paul, uh, Wayne Dyer changed my thoughts mm. about my purpose when he stated, David, the thoughts about your purpose are your purpose. And I think mm. never before have I met with someone that, uh, your process is about figuring out your thoughts about purpose. And that's what you're talking about. One of the other interesting things uh, was in the title of your book, I thought it was uh, interesting that you used the power of playing offense aligned with being a Y coach. You know, what do you consider playing offense in thinking about your purpose and executing on the Y strategy of your life and business? 
Yeah, it's a great question. I think purpose is clearly, to me, the outcome, what comes out of the funnel. I'll quickly explain offense versus defense, and then purpose is that grand finale. So in life, as I was in these hyper-growth, hyper-competitive environments like you both have been, I started to reflect back on my 15-year journey in the NFL and NBA, especially in front offices, and I walked away convinced that there's two types of people and two types of performers, those that play offense versus those that play defense. So metaphorically, defense, they're always on their heels. Offense, they're always on their toes. Defense always has a mindset of playing not to lose. Offense, playing to win. Defense, external circumstances and market conditions are going to always dictate their terms, but then offense operate on our own terms and we play with purpose, we play with passion, we take control of our future. And really for me, the power of playing offense with purpose is just that. It's how can you live life on your terms? How can you take control of your future if you don't even know why you're taking each step? That's the connection between playing offense and purpose. Yeah, it's very simply, and I'm glad I'm back in this conversation, <laughs> uh, the distinction between on defense being reactive to what's yeah. coming at me and on offense, being responsive to opportunity that presents itself. No and doubt. That, that, I mean, the, the goal is in back of me on defense. The goal's in front of me on offense. Yeah. So it's an interesting, yeah, an interesting way to position that. Yeah. The, yeah. It, and then in the context of leadership, uh, you know, a lot of people don't see the value in these transformative you know, like you, your life changed when you went to this, you know, retreat. And, you know, I, I tell a story about when I was on my transformational journey, I went to a money workshop and Mm. I came back and told my business partner, and and this is classic. What happens guys like you go to these retreats like me, well, I went to this money workshop an energy of money workshop. And I came back and told my business partner, Oh my gosh, you're not going to believe it was unbelievable. My whole life has changed. I'm literally have doubled the amount of money that I've made in such a short amount of time. I've shifted blockages and resistance to money. I've learned how to receive energetically, all these things, right? And he's like, oh my God, that's awesome. Well, let's bring in and do the workshop for our company. We had about a hundred employees at the time, right? And I was like, oh no, no, we can't afford to do that. And so um, (laughs) genius that I am. But what I find so interesting is did you, when you came back from the retreat and, yeah. you know, drank the Kool-Aid, you know, you were like my partner, very open-minded, open-hearted and open-handed, but yeah. the mindset of an organization that you're working for, even though they put on the retreat, I know for a fact, no matter who they are, the the Chargers, the Seahawks, the, the Niners, when you get back into it, it's the CYA culture of defense. How, how receptive were they? You know, even though they put on the, the retreat, even though they wanted you to have, you know, a transformation, how receptive were they to the extent in which you took this power of playing offense and being a Y coach? Well, there's a bumper sticker answer and a real answer because the bumper <laughs> sticker is, and, and look, we, we, we all kind of check the boxes in some ways, especially in a big corporate hierarchical organization. And so the bumper sticker is, hey, a year before this, we bring in Simon Sinek to speak. He inspires a purpose of why, and it permeates into understanding some of our guiding principles and hows. But in my opinion, the true transformation organizationally still hadn't happened. You were seeing early signs, but it was really kind of, could I, could I audit the daily culture and say, yes, 
actions and behaviors are different. It took some time. So to answer your question now in a real way is, look, it didn't happen overnight. There was a lot of muddy water to get to the promised land. And that process of coaching one person to two, to five, to 10, to 50, I get called into HR's office, which normally is a bad thing. And who knows? I was in trouble. But lo and behold, they said, hey, we heard through the water cooler buzz what you're doing. And we're actually thinking of integrating it into our onboarding process. We literally want to welcome everybody, whether player or accountant. And we want to understand their why as they're being welcomed in, because now that we have an organizational why, which was found over a year before, we need to find alignment and connection. Because if people don't feel like they're a part of something bigger than themselves, they they will work for a paycheck, but they won't work with the blood, sweat, and tears. So that's yep. kind of the, the principle is it took time. By time, I mean years. And if it wasn't for, I'm not going to pat myself on the back for this one, but if I don't take that one-to-one private attention of becoming the Y coach, I'm not sure that it bubbles up in such a macro way that I promise you still stands today. And I haven't been with the Niners for three years. I promise you their culture is better than ever, but it's because of what happened uh, years before that point. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. You learn about, about leadership in a workshop scenario. You learn about it. You learn the principles. It's the transfer from that environment into real life practice. And that's where your coaching really makes a difference. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. What, what's the fungible yeah. action that's different? Yeah. Sorry, Bling, repeat that. I said, yeah, basically what you do is you start looking at what's the action necessary to make it different. And that's the leadership move. A hundred percent. And I want to connect what both of you have said in the last handful of minutes. So Blaine, you said offense versus defense, reactive versus proactive, right? And then David brings up, hey, the power of playing offense and it's a leader's playbook. I'll combine those two because I used to play a lot of defense in my journey. And before I could consider myself a leader that inspired people to follow me to no end, I was a manager that did not deserve a single follower. Why? Because I was reactive. I thought that the way the world defines leadership, it's about rank, role, title, authority. I thought leadership of others was the key. And then I realized, holy smokes, the answer is in the mirror. Before you lead others, you must first lead yourself. That became the premise of the book because that's what changed my entire life. Yes, purpose was the transformation mechanism, but ultimately I had to step into leadership of self and that really is playing offense because you don't need a title to lead mm-hmm. yourself. And purpose certainly is one of those big igniters to know who you are, which to me is the epitome of leadership itself. So it's funny how we're talking, we're using different yeah. words, but they're all connected. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, coming from the genre of the 49ers, you are the Bill Walsh of why. And uh, <laughs> I'm sure he appreciates uh, immensely uh, the culture that you've created and left uh, for his beloved 49ers. Paul Epstein, best-selling author of The Power of Playing Offense. He is your Y coach. Check him out. Keynote speaker, executive, podcast host uh, of the Purpose Labs there. And we uh, always do a swap with you and lo- <laughs> love having you on. What a great insight. And you get it is all I have to say. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thank you both. Honored. Thanks, Paul. Great meeting you. Thank you. Great. Great job. My kind of guy. 
My kind of guy. Yeah. We need more people like that in sports. I'll tell you that. That's for sure. All right. Now we got the young, the young stud coming in here. Founder of Rapid <laughs> Growth Coach. Uh, I always love a coach that, uh, you know, isn't old enough to feel the pain that you and I have felt, but somehow they do it. <laughs> He's a guru, a top sales uh, professional. He's also written a book, uh, The Introvert's Edge to Networking, which I know uh, in his culture and age group, uh, there's more introverts. You know, I would say the extrovert of today looks at your shoes when he talks at you. Uh, you know, that 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 is the definition of an extrovert. They're, they're looking at your shoes instead of their own. Uh, so I'm really curious. Uh, the book came out in January. Matthew Pollard, uh, founder of Rapid Go- Growth Coach, uh, the introverts edge.com. Welcome to Office Hours. Thank you, mate. I'm ecstatic to be here. And I have to say, I, while I think that people talk about the fact that there are a lot more introverts these days, I think that just talking about introversion, if you go back 20, 30 years, was kind of an embarrassing thing. It wasn't something that people were willing to share, even though amazing introverts like Zig Ziglar, like Ivan Meisner, happened to create the world's largest networking event, happened to be the most well-known sales trainer on the planet. Yet still, it was just something that people were ashamed to talk about. I love that. No. And I've been, yeah, I've been sure. a friend of Blaine and, and I. Um, and now you must be an introvert yourself. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. And I think this is an important point just because I'm articulate, just because I can have energy. And I mean, I'm talking about my passion, right? Which introverts are great at talking about. Uh, it doesn't mean that I'm not introverted. I mean, a lot of people will say, oh, Matt, after hearing you speak, you know, I, I don't believe that you're an introvert. And I'm like, that's right, because we're all supposed to just hide under, well, different bridges, but a bridge, right? Because we're not supposed to talk to people. The fact of the matter is, introverts aren't second-class citizens. Their path to success is just different. The problem is that a lot of times we get caught out trying to behave like extroverts and trying to copy what extroverts do, and that just doesn't work for us. Yeah. You know, Ivan, I was in a conversation with him, Ivan Meisner, uh, not too long ago, and we were talking about, you know, this, this uh, polarity, extrovert, introvert. And he, uh, he said it, it, there was a point where he realized, because he, he, he's pretty introverted, he, you know, his batteries don't get charged by being around a lot of people. And I'm, I'm kind of the same way. My batteries get charged, you know, when I go to the man cave. But the comment he made, and I'm going to check this out with you, Matthew. Uh, he said, I'm, I, I came on the realization that I'm a situational extrovert. I can, I can dial it up when I need to, but I do need to recharge. And where my recharging happens is in the back room. So you know, I think is, is that part, part of, uh, parcel of, of how you're positioning some of this? So and, and I guess what I would get at there is that implies that to be situational as an extrovert means that I can be successful in specific situations that are so-called extroverted arenas. I'll I'll say it uh, in a different way. I believe that introverts make the best salespeople, the best networkers, and the best public speakers. The truth is that, I mean, and this isn't new stuff, by the way. Brian Tracy talked about the top 10% of all sales performers have a planned presentation. The bottom 80% just say whatever comes out of their mouth. Well, if you think about who's better at planning and preparation, well, that's the introvert. Well, who's better at saying whatever comes out of their mouth? That's the extrovert, which is why, funnily enough, you know, I've spoken at some of the biggest sales leadership conferences. And if you ask who's introverted, once you get them past the, oh, I don't want to admit that I'm an introvert. And I just ask this question. Do you draw your energy from being by yourself or do you draw your energy from being with people? Because psychologists have made it way too confusing for people to understand. And if we get beyond 
it's a good thing or it's a bad thing and created as just a version of where we draw our energy from, all of a sudden people are happy to talk about it. And funnily enough, when you get to the upper echelons, more people tend to be introverted than extroverted. The problem is, if you think about the bottom 80%, well, obviously the best of those are going to be the extrovert gift of gab style kind of people. And they're also more likely to brag about it too. So because of that, you kind of hear about these amazing sales activities that extroverts tend to, to do. So if you think about the so-called extroverted arenas of networking, of sales, of public speaking, I think the biggest hurdle that we have is that we see someone that's good at it and we project extroversion upon them. And we're like, oh, that person, I've done it. I've seen amazing speakers and gone, oh, it's easy for them, they're extroverted. And then I've spoken to them later and they talk about the fact that they're introverted and now they're not. Like that's even possible. You either draw your energy from being by yourself or with people, it doesn't change. Now we do get better at it, which means we enjoy it more and it drains our energy less. And again, mm -hmm. for introverts, it's generally about learning systems and strategies that channel our introverted strengths. And I mean, if you think about networking, for an example, you know, things like empathy, active listening, these are things that people appreciate in networkers. But we think we need to bring our extroverted buddy along to get us in front of people. If we learn how to create a system for doing that, we tend to do much better in those activities. Yep. Matt, you bring up a really good point that was just touched on at the very end, that introverts are much better active listeners. You know, an extrovert is an interrupter and a waiter in normally, which means they're interrupting you immediately or they just can't wait to tell you what they want to tell you and they're not actively listening. Uh, and anyone in sales from Zig Ziglar to Brian Tracy, uh, all Mike Bosworth, you know, all the great sales gurus that I've learned from Dennis Waitley, I may have mentioned before too, will always tell you not only is active listening the number one thing, but the ability to be curious. Introverts are also more curious, uh, more inept of asking, more apt of asking uh, questions that lead to quantitative value, asking open-ended questions so the other person can talk about their favorite topic themselves, and then using closed-ended questions in order to facilitate leading them towards either how they could be of service or value, or asking them. Do they know anyone that could be of service or value to them? Uh, in that practice, though, uh, somewhere along the lines, it gets blurred that an extrovert uh, is a good listener because they're a good presenter. Where where does it fall in? Blaine taught me a lesson about speaking that changed my life. And he's more intros introspective and introverted than I am. Uh, but most people wouldn't know because I'm on all day. Uh, that my wife is the extrovert when when the the screen turns off and I get to enjoy being an introvert and nobody notices. Uh, they just consider I'm this you know boisterous on twelve hours a day person. But what gift the introvert has is they have the capability of understanding what people are listening for. See, an extrovert is and Blaine taught me this. An extrovert will come off a stage and say, "Oh, I hope they heard that." You know, I, you know they were listening to me. And the introvert will get off stage and say, yeah, I, I think they were listening for that, you know, uh, yeah, and they would understand that. How important is this active, active listening and listening for and curiosity combined for an introvert as a superpower? So there's a couple of really important points that you made there. Now, firstly, the fact is, yes, introverts are great at listening. We're, we're very empathetic individuals. Now, the, the fact is, I mean, when you talk about introversion, extroversion, we both have our burdens to bear. Extroverts need help with those skill sets. Now, I would actually say, 
an extrovert learning how to actively listen is harder than an introvert learning how to sell and network following a sales system or a networking system. The difference is, in my mind, is that an extrovert will go, oh, I'm not great at that. I will go and learn how to do it. Maybe I'll pick up an emotion, a book on emotional intelligence. I'll pick up a book on active listening. And gosh, if I don't do it, my the senior HR managers are going to come down and say, you need this training. But the difference is when an introvert can't sell network, lead a team, HR goes, oh, poor Matthew. Matthew's just an introvert. He can't do that, right? And that's the difference. We've created this wall that introverts can't seem to cross. They don't know they can cross where extroverts just see these as skills gaps. And I think it's important for introverts to realize that these skills are just gaps that we have that we need to develop. Now, when you think about these amazing skills, I think that, you know, Ryan Dice, who came on my Introverts Edge podcast, talked about he used to get really scared about speaking from stage, and he still won't speak from stage unless there's a back entrance. He said, I'm not worried about speaking from stage. I'm worried about being trampled when I come off. He said, though, the thing for him is he used to have great deals of issues getting on stage when he was all about how do I make them like me? How do I make them, you know, see me as credible and listen to what I have to say? He said, as soon as I realized it wasn't about me, it was about them. All of a sudden, everything transformed. And I think that that's a real power for introverts. I know when I speak from stage, and, you know, I'm, you know, I'm listed as one of the top 10 sales speakers in the world. And I think that the reason for that is not because I'm a better speaker than everyone else or my topic matters better. It's because I'm very, very good at being in tune to the audience and seeing what they're going through, responding to them. When they ask me a question in the Q&A afterwards, I don't see how can I big moat myself during that or how can I bring them back to a strategy? I ask myself, why are they asking that question? And what's going on for them that means that they're thinking this way, which allows me to answer the question a lot more on point than anyone else. Instead of going into a strategy or a story, I'll really consider what they're doing. Now, for introverts, a lot of times that can be a disadvantage because we can get stuck in our head trying to think of what to say and the moment has passed. But an introvert talking about their zone of genius, again, they can really think through a lot of options before they go on. And when they're asked that question, they can say, what is this person thinking? What is the thing that I have planned and prepared that's the closest to that that I can deliver? And if something comes up that they don't have planned and prepared, then they can take that as a note for next time to plan and prepare a response for that, which means that when you get an introverted speaker five, 10 years into their speaking career or someone that's been networking for five or 10 years, they come across as so polished where an extrovert, you ask them to go and say the exact same thing that they did in that presentation to a different group. The whole presentation is different. You can't get them to stick to anything. So that's why, I mean, If you're manufacturing a vehicle, you don't want to build a new car with a different plan every single time. But if you build a production line, it gets better and better every time. The defects get less and less. And that's why I find that introverts tend to rise to the top. Well, I was uh, speaking of the top, I was listed as the number one sales professional in the world. Unfortunately, it was my mom's list, Blaine, but I don't know if you got on there. <laughs> Go ahead, Blaine. Well, I have to tell you, you know, um, Grant Cardone is still number one, and he's definitely an extrovert. Never heard of it. Never heard never of it. Of it. Never heard of it. <laughs> but what I will say is that I, you know, a lot of, I get a lot of recognition for being the the introvert on that list. Like I'm the only introvert on that list, right? You go down a little bit further, you've got Jeb Blunt, Mark Hunter, Lee Sells, like they're all introverted, right? The thing is that what generally happens is people look at that list and go, they're all they're obviously all extroverted if they can sell. Just or, like or they have enough money to pay to be on the list. <laughs> well, you know, there's 
you know, a lot of people can oh, buy well, the truth, I raised well. the past this because I fucking hate lists. So anyway, I, I apologize. I'm an extrovert and I can pay my I'm way. Out I, I have a whole list, if you want, Matthew, of a whole bunch of companies that will make you number one on every single list. I'll be happy to collect your money and make you number one. On <laughs> well, that's unfortunate, you, isn't it? What makes you so valuable to me is not those lists, is that you right. walk the walk. And what you're talking about is true here. And whether they put you as number one or number five, what you say to me is much more valuable than some of those other people, because what you're saying is extremely true from my experience. And you know what you're talking about in that book is extremely valuable. Go ahead, but we got time for one question. No, I was just going to actually emphasize you know, what you were just saying there. Uh, what you're bringing to the table is what yeah, is valuable. Yeah, the list is you know, just, you know, it's whatever it is. Well, that I, will say, I will say it's true. I will say it's true and false. I mean, so for me, you know, I, you know, I don't need to be on lists. But what I, what I do find, though, is being on that list allows more people to listen. And yeah. I find that is a powerful thing. Because the truth is, yeah. I mean, yes, I mean, you can buy New York Times bestseller, you can buy Wall Street Journal. Gosh, no one wants to say that out loud. But you, you right. can. <laughs> everybody, these dogs and their dog has an Amazon bestseller. Right. And the truth is that being on those lists aren't significant except for the people that it is significant to. And the thing for me is I can tell you my passion is working with small business. I love working with small business. You know, I believe there's something heroic about a person with enough skill, talent and expertise that goes out and just does it on their own. But the truth is the fact that I've worked with Oracle, Intel, Microsoft, these big names that I don't enjoy working with as much. But the credibility that those logos give me to help the people I truly mean to serve is important. And the fact is those lists get people to listen. And as sad as it's true, I mean, that's why people pay for them, right? I, I think that may be the most valuable takeaway is there yep. is a blend, especially with social media, because I fight with my team all the time uh, that, you know, I'll speak at a level that most people won't understand, but I have to have the other stuff if I'm going to be able to impact them. Because if nobody yep. gets what I'm saying or I'm at a, a level and I'm not on those lists as well, and I'm not doing videos on Instagram or even now on TikTok, then I'm going to miss a huge audience. And, totally. you know, to resist TikTok just because you're 53 years old is asinine when you want to impact a bunch of 19-year-old entrepreneurs who are watching TikTok. So if I believe that my stuff is good, that I can change people's life, like your stuff is good, yes. Matthew, and your book mm -hmm. is good, then yes. we got to go and do those things exactly uh, to do so. And I, in all, you know, sarcasm, wanted to make sure that people realize that, Lists are great for those who, who, who like them in branding, but just because someone may not be on that list or is on that list uh, doesn't mean they carry the weight that Matthew carries and the knowledge that he has. And I love Ivan Meisner, Zig Ziglar, Dennis Waitley, the, the heritage and legacy that you carry within and bring it to a modern perspective with this nuance of introvert and extrovert is incredible. So thank you so much for joining us. I will tell you, it's been my experience that running backs uh, our introverts, the best running backs that I know, uh, yeah. Herschel Walker, Bo Jackson, Marshall Falk, incredible running backs are introverts. Comedians, the greatest comedians I've met are mostly introverts. Oh, absolutely. And yeah. a lot of the greatest actors, uh, which is really incredible. And now the greatest speakers and salespeople as well. So don't be afraid to look at the other people's shoes. Be an introvert. Read this book, The Introvert's Edge to Networking and sales, I imagine. Matthew Pollard, you're incredible. The introvertsedge.com, founder of Rapid Growth Coach. I look forward to doing more with you, my friend. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for having Thanks, me. Matthew. Cheers, guys. You Thanks. bet.
<laughs> what a great that was great I, I, it, he just he walks the walk all he right did. i mean yeah let's let's bring uh ty up uh ty smith an easy yeah. name for the name butcher himself <laughs> ty smith welcome to the go. ceo of comsafe ai a tool that monitors uh and ho- helps with threats of violence and uh obviously number one thank you so much for your service ty uh, you know, thank you. you and your family, by the way, I uh, work with a lot of military families as well as veterans and active duty. I've been blessed to speak even to the Air Force um, and the Air Force One uh, squadron of 200 and some. And man, I, I, I just blown away by the Navy, especially. Uh, I spent some time on a carrier and all I wanted to do is get off. <laughs> I, I got before we started, I got to tell this. I story. know the feeling. I was in that leader, this leadership thing and I flew out on a helicopter 70 miles off the shore of San Diego and 10 foot waves uh, when we landed. So we had to get a couple tries on that. All the even the PR people for the Navy were throwing up because they're looking through <laughs> cameras. Um, but when I got off the helicopter at the end of the day, you, you know, nobody likes paying taxes. I, I will tell you that I've never been happier <laughs> from the people I met and the investment that they make into our freedom. Uh, into our country. I've never felt like my tax dollars have ever been more well spent than with the Navy. Uh, and so once again, I just want to reiterate that obviously a lot's going on today in, in Afghanistan, especially which you spent time in. Uh, but let's talk about threats of violence and how AI and technology has really increased our ability to keep us safe uh, with those monitors. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. I, I really, really appreciate it. Um, this is a, a really big deal for me for a couple different reasons. Like you said, I, I spent the first couple decades of my adult life in the United States Navy. I joined the Navy, I think, because when it comes down to it, I'm a protector of people. That's who I am inherently. Since, since I was a little boy, my mom's you know, ingrained it in my brain. You are a protector of other human beings. That's why God put you on this earth. And my mom is a retired 27-year police officer, by the way, in East St. Louis, Illinois. Uh, so, you know, being protectors of people, that's a really big deal in our family. And so when I joined the Navy, joining the SEAL teams just really taught me how to hone something that was naturally within me. And I, I say that to say this, after retiring from the Navy in 2016, I had to understand that, again, this is who you are inherently, Ty. You can't change that simply because you're leaving your naval uniform behind. I have to continue being the person that I have always been. And so that's what led to me starting this business is because I knew that just because I was transitioning from the military didn't mean that I was going to stop being a protector of people. And so being the CEO of ComSafe AI allows me to continue being a protector of people and charging toward the betterment of mankind. And what ComSafe AI does is it allows large organizations with greater than 3,000 employees to get ahead of threats of conflict and violence in the workplace. Conflict and violence that, that stems with toxic communication, whether we're talking about sexual harassment, Title VII or Title IX discrimination, anti-diversity and inclusion discrimination, bullying, all of the above. It starts with toxic communication. ComSafe AI 
finds that toxic communication automatically and autonomously within the virtual communication services an organization uses. So their email and their chat services. So even if they're using Slack or Microsoft Teams and CompSafe AI sends out near real-time alerts to decision makers whenever these instances take place over email or chat so that it illuminates that potential liability for the organization so that they can do something about it right now. Not six months from now when they're trying to figure out why Sarah quit and now she's suing the company for sexual harassment, but right now. The AI uh, algorithms, I'm gonna say plural here, uh, I'm assuming there's more than one algorithm that you've actually developed around this. Um, how do you know, I'm just curious, how did you field test this? Because language is notoriously difficult for yeah, to, to parse from an AI perspective. Um, yeah, because it's it's fraught with you know meaning misinterpretations. So how have you kind of safeguarded you know, the uh, the process by which you can, with reliability, go, yeah, this is something we need to pay attention to. That one, even though some of the words are the same, we don't need to pay attention to it. Great question. So that's actually the difference between CompSafe AI and many of our competitors that have machine learning algorithms that are totally rules-based. They're not automated. They're not autonomous. They don't understand the difference of nuance and context and the difference between an employee typing something about something that's flame retardant versus someone calling another person understands the difference between hey bro it's friday i can kill for beer versus i'm going to come down to that office on friday and kill you and when we built this solution to its beta standard we used off-the-shelf publicly available data models just like our competitors did. BERT models from Google. We got our hands on a couple of different data sets that were proprietary in nature. We used the, the Enron data set. We got our hands on uh, the Stormfront data set. We, there's plenty of toxic behavior and communication that you can rip off of Twitter 24-7. But where we really started differentiating was by creating our own proprietary data set. We were able to get our hands on a data set that was completely raw, unstructured, untagged, but it was a treasure trove of toxic communication that took place at a fairly large company. And so our subject matter experts actually combine over $100 million worth of training and 76 certifications in this space because of our unique backgrounds in the SEAL teams, the Army Green Berets, the United States Secret Service, and high-level law enforcement. So we took on the heavy lift of actually parsing through all of that data, structuring it, and tagging it so that we could use it to increase the predictive capability of our models. That allowed us to advance toward minimum viable product. And once we start onboarding paying customers and ingesting and learning from their data, that allowed us to really start to, to pick up speed. So your algorithm is actually relatively heuristic. Yes. Uh, I mean, it, it will it, learn. It's always learning. It's always yeah. learning. And the more data it gets access to, the more it learns and the faster it learns. Great. Sorry, David. Look, Go ahead. No, no, that's fine. I mean, I, as an entrepreneur and office hours built for entrepreneurs, learning lessons from people like you. One of the things that amazes me about you 
You've been over, you know, and survived 70 plus gunfights alone. You've overcome somehow traumatic brain injury, which TBI is a serious issue, but even more the PTS uh, of all of these different traumas that you suffered in Iran, Iraq and Afghanistan with six tours. But you're kind of quoted as saying that as stressful as all of that has been, which I can tell you, I've been an entrepreneur for 30 years. <laughs> uh, and I, I, I just can't imagine someone tells, telling me that none of them has stressed them out more than growing his technology company from ground zero, that that stresses you out. I'm sorry, man. Six tours in Iraq and <laughs> Afghanistan. I, I've He's lost. I, I can tell you this. I lost over $100 million as an entrepreneur. I, I've gone from ground zero to the highlands, back down to ground zero. I'm sorry. I cannot imagine it. The stress that I've been through in my 35 years equaling the stress that you've been through. I'm sorry. <laughs> tell me why it's so stressful. Well, thank you. I, I really appreciate you saying that, Dave. I, I think it's it's stressful for me. Why? Well, it's a different kind of stress. When I was in the SEAL teams, I thought that I was I was fairly decent at, at doing that job, and it was primarily because I I was I had been doing it for so long, and the training that we receive is just world class. I mean, there there you will find no better training or trainers on the planet. It's just incredible. It's the most realistic training you can imagine. Therefore, when you get overseas and you start doing the job and shooting starts, you don't have to think about what you're going to do. Training kicks in because it has just been ingrained in your DNA. And that's why we're so good at our jobs overseas. And I had gotten comfortable. I've been doing that job for a really long time. I, I'd had a lot of combat experience and I really, really loved it. But when I took the leap into entrepreneurship, I was committing to a, a type of uncertainty and, and unknown that I just wasn't used to anymore because I was used to the structure of the military. And when I got into entrepreneurship, I realized, oh my God, like really nobody is going to help me. I have to figure this all out. Now I can go to people and, and pull help out of them and, and ask for mentorship and guidance, but even still, that's only going to get me so far. And then once I got to the point where I realized that, hey, you've grown something that's got legs to it. This this could become really, really valuable, but in order for you to get it there, you're going to need a lot need a lot more money. When I got to that point and I started, you know, down the path of raising investor capital. And, and make no mistake, the, the first couple million dollars I raised, that's friends and family. So that's that's money that I raised from people that love me and care about me and that's believe in me. And, and I feel <laughs> the same about them. Absolutely not. I've done hard things before. I will do much harder in order to not have to have that conversation with those people that I care about that. The way I see it, they literally took food out of their kids' mouths because they believe in me. And I just, there's just no way in hell I'm going to let them down. And so yeah. for me, that's just, uh, it, it's a different kind of stress. And especially in today's environment with everything that, that has been happening across our country over the last year and a half, it's made it that much harder on us entrepreneurs. And, and we've had to figure out how to survive this pandemic. And again, that investor capital that I raised is still on the line, you know, and, and my investors would understand that, hey, y'all, I, I couldn't have 
guessed that there was going to be a, a global pandemic that was going to come down and, and, and shut down small and mid-sized businesses, they'll understand. But at the same time, I'm a frogman. If I say I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it. I don't care about what the obstacles are. I'm going to go over, around, or through them. I have to get this done. I gave people my word. And yeah, so and, I just think it's a different nature. kind of stress. And I want to stress to your quantum nature, as you stated at the beginning of the interview, right, is to protect people. Okay. So any yeah. any chance of harming somebody, right, of putting them to a, a disadvantage is so innately against your quantum being that you have genetically and energetically inherited that that is probably what causes the most stress to you is the, the accountability that you've learned and has been ingrained and genetically and energetically tuned and, and programmed into your AI. Uh, it, it must be overwhelming at times. So I can imagine uh, what was that like? Uh, I know we got a minute, Blaine. You got something real quick? I No, I just wanted to commend you, uh, Ty, uh, into the point that David's making. Yeah, as a protector, um, protecting the investment, but also more than anything else, just the realization that, yeah, this is a different kind of stress. It, it's a chronic stress. It's not an acute stress that comes from a battlefield situation. It's chronic. It doesn't go away. No, and it did that's, not. <laughs> that is a key, that, that's a key thing that entrepreneurs deal with. Uh, it, it really is. Is yeah, And learning how to manage that. Uh, and you're, I think you're doing a hell of a job with it. I honestly do. Thank you so much. Senior chief, I wouldn't expect less. Yeah, I know. I always say, you know, don't take for granted what other people are wishing for. And I know you've been over to Iraq and Afghanistan and we see what's going on right now. Uh, And, you know, let's all remember as we sit here and with what you provided and protected us with, you know, please, everybody don't take for granted what all these people around the world are wishing for. Uh, the mm-hmm. things that Ty has uh, put his life on the line, his own uh, mental and physical uh, being on the line for all of us. So I just want to reiterate my gratitude, but also for everyone out there, please don't take for granted what other people are wishing for, especially our freedom and uh, beyond ComSafe, beyond what you're doing, which, you know, you're you're the entrepreneur I'm investing in, the guy yeah. that, that will go, he'll do whatever it takes. That's the secret sauce of an entrepreneur. Please, Absolutely. everybody, help out ComSafe.ai, founder and CEO of ComSafe.ai, Ty Smith, incredible hero and an entrepreneur. You're welcome back anytime. Thank you. Hours. Thank you, sir. I really appreciate it. Thank Thank you. Great having you on. Awesome. Thank you so much. Have a great day. <laughs> you betcha. <laughs> you know, I talk about health. Uh, when you're healthy, you get as many wishes a day that you want. And when you're not, you get one wish. The same holds true with freedom. Right. When we're free, we get as many wishes as we want. If you're not free, you only have one wish. And it's people like Ty Smith uh, that provide not only the freedom for our country, but now through his AI, freedom in the workplace to be ourselves, to be equitable and inclusive, to be who we are, our frequency, our truth, our potential can be pursued without judgment and condition in the workplace. Uh, And we are making progress, not perfection, my friend, as you know, but we're old enough to see the progress that has been made. And there is no perfection in it, but, but I definitely see that we have a better place to live right now and, and, and a better yeah. a, a better country. So, all right, we're going to bring on quickly Chad. Yeah, uh, yeah. He's here, founder and CEO and chairman of Helicoid Industries. Uh, Chad Wilsonenkoff is uh, welcome here, top 40 under 40 guy. 
once again, another 50 most influential people in Vancouver. The list go on and on. E&Y, Entrepreneur of the Year, all the great accolades. Uh, but, Chad, we really want to know, what do you have going on at Helicoid, and how can we be of service to you? Sure. Well, first of all, great to meet you, and thanks for having me on. So, uh, yeah, Helicoid is my uh, latest venture. So I've, I've built and grown over 30 companies, taken a dozen public, and uh, sort of dropped them all to focus my time on, the, on this Helicoid. I was actually volunteering at the University of San Diego and University of Riverside, California, at their business school and entrepreneurship school. And I was out with some of the professors one night and I said, you guys do hundreds of millions of dollars of research. Uh, you have in-house patent lawyers. What's the most exciting, disruptive, ready to commercialize technology you have? And it was this helicoid. And so what it is, is it's new technology that can make any and all composites. When I say composites, think about carbon fiber, fiberglass, uh, Kevlar, things like that using the exact same material, just changing the way it's put together. So also sort of think away like the honeycomb structure, but by using the same material, just putting it together a little bit differently, we can basically double the performance. So I hired a guy out of Boeing. He was 35 years in composites at Boeing, 64 patents in his name, flew him down to, to do the due diligence. And he said, this is game changing. So now he works for our company. I approached DuPont. They quickly got excited and put it to our head of global innovation worldwide in Switzerland. And he, after about four or five meetings with huge teams of engineers, he called me up and said, I'm ready to leave DuPont for this technology. So we're assembling a world-class team. Of course, things are a little slow with uh, COVID and people can't get into the labs. At least we know we have uh, something valuable. Uh, we're getting great traction. We've got over 20 different globally recognized customers in all kinds of industries now going through prototyping. So we're, uh, we've launched, uh, as I said, a little slower than expected with COVID. And now we're uh, just embarking on our next round of financing. And how much have you raised so far? I raised two point eight million uh, privately so far, and now we're raising another two point two million. Uh, the plan was always to raise five million to fully develop out the business plan, uh, get through to profitability, uh, and then I'll I'll probably take this company public in the, in the coming years. Because okay. a lot of our, that first two point eight million is the hardest two point eight million to raise. I know that. So uh, anyway, you, you have a question for Blaine and I? Yes, I obviously. Fascinated by what you guys are doing, and I would love to know more in terms of any any advice of what you're seeing in the landscape these days in terms of investors and angel investors, and are people you know still nervous about COVID, or are their pockets and wallet books open and they're willing to get back to some more risk investing? I saw a piece today that uh, kind of confirmed a gut feeling that I had, and with this wave of uh, resignations. Uh, that, that's kind of sweeping the country in a lot of different ways. There are more startups beginning to show up um, than we have seen in decades. Um, and concomitant with that is a need for investor money. I mean, and, and I think investors are really paying attention uh, to this. So I think, I mean, I, and I'm going to you know, actually bring Ty uh, back into this. Uh, the investors that I know are paying attention to the who is in the in in, in the uh, the position of leading the company, assuming that the the the, uh, the product or the service is yeah unique yeah it's worth an investment. Who's the who? Who's the management team that you're putting together? Based on what you're saying, Chad, you know, you've got a team that and, and with your track record particularly, uh, I think you're going to find that the it, it's actually a fairly rich uh, environment from which to draw going forward. 
Yeah, and, and Chad, for me, I'm uh, completely optimistic. You know, I'm uh, with my TV shows from Elevator Pitch, Two Minute Drill, to the Entrepreneur Podcast I have. Uh, in in judging even today on Clubhouse, another pitch competition, and working with the greatest angel investors, VCs, there is more dumb money and more smart money available right now than ever before. Uh, the problem is there's not enough, as Blaine was alluding to credible entrepreneurs. Uh, mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, there's uh, the most ever uh, last in 2020 uh, startups in America, most ever, most ever minority startups in America ever, which is a great thing. The problem uh, with American history towards entrepreneurship is that your average successful entrepreneur goes bankrupt two times before they're successful. I managed to be yep. successful go bankrupt and then be successful again. So I'm an anomaly that I only went bankrupt once. Um, but that didn't make the investors that, you know, made me wealthy the first time around happy uh, when <laughs> all my businesses went under. And those were investors who begged me to take their money because I had a Midas reputation. And that's not a good thing. But as far as answering your question, if you have the right team and, a, and the ability to articulate the quantitative value uh, that you're asking for to be greater than what you're asking for. And you have a history of success like you. Oh my goodness. You know, you're going to be choosing the best investment dollars. You're going to have a way, you know, I, I would say people have a problem as an investor right now that the valuations are way too high. Then there's not enough money on the sidelines. There's plenty of money. His problem is getting a deal that's not outrageous in his valuation or with some, you know, I am, I invested in mediakits.com. Uh, my problem with mediacus.com is I knew if I was going to invest and I had to do some work because the two founders are 19 or 20 and 21. Uh, and I don't care how great I know that business is to instantly create a, you know, a dynamic media kit for podcasters, influencers, et cetera. It's still run by a 20 year old, <laughs> right? That's yeah. the advantage that you have. And believe me, they raised a ton of money really quickly off of mediacus.com because they had the domain and a great idea. I'd much rather invest in, you know, an Ernst and Young uh, Entrepreneur of the Year who has 30 companies and taken one public and blah blah blah. So you have no problem here in America raising money. Let's just get you out there in front of the right people, and you should be yeah. able to close that 2.2 million in minutes. Yeah. What are your thoughts on venture capital versus angels? My previously most of my experience has been either in the public markets or institutional money, but not venture capital. I like two, I like two classes of stock. I think people always deny themselves an opportunity because they think in the context of the investor perspective. For me, I think of structural uh, raising. So I always love to fund my deals with non-voting shares and voting shares so that any dumb money that wants to come in, I'll take your money, but you have no say in what I do. And smart money, I will give you an advantage in the marketplace. And we'll talk about evaluation. But you know, a strategic investor, a venture capitalist that can expand and, and uh, compound the valuation and knows through, you know, their network, you know, you get a bunch of Stanford guys, they got a, a leg up on making sure that the next round is even bigger with a higher valuation and taking it public is even easier when you have the right strategic investors in there, but do two classes of stock, take in as yeah. much money as you can as quickly as you can. And non-voting with voting versus common and preferred? Correct. Yep. Awesome, Chad. Congratulations. And when you uh, 
send out that deck, send it to me. I got a, a few funds that I'm an LP in, and those are the type of deals I'm. I can't find entrepreneurs like you, so send it over. Send it over. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, Dad. All right, we did it. We, you know, it's amazing. Another one in the can. Four great guests. You know, just I, I'm so blessed that uh, all these people are willing to share their stories and questions and lessons and inspiration with us, but. As much as they were great, one of my favorite times of the day, especially with you on the office hours, formerly known as the Solo Business, by the way, uh, your course. <laughs> uh, but office hours with David Meltzer now, uh, no ego involved, but great branding for the TV show. Um, Absolutely. <laughs> my favorite part's takeaway of the day. Uh, you know, wh- what lesson did you learn? Wh- where, where's your takeaway for the day? Uh, I'm going to you know, start with Paul, just the, you know, the, that offense-defense um, dynamic. Uh, and I forget who said it, but the best defense is a good, is a good offense. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, and as we run that thread through uh, the other three guests, yeah, every one of them, and I think this is true for you know, strong, strong entrepreneurs, uh, is that they are in a position, and they put themselves consistently in a position to be responsive, not reactive. And they are continuously looking for how can I keep what I'm what I'm looking for in front of me and in front of us, you know, the team. Um, and that's that's an offensive play. It's you know, and you know, you're, you're calling audibles all the time. Um, but but a good offense, uh, a really good offense, uh, can work wonders in just about any environment. And it's not, and I think one of the big takeaways here for me is it's not about being right. It's not about the right plan. It's about executing, just kind of, you know, being on offense so that I don't have to be on my heels all the time. Stuff happens out there. Yeah, stuff is always happening out there. And I want to be in a position to be responsive, not reactive. And the mindset uh, that actually makes that possible is is one of you know, uh, you know being on offense. So I'll, I'll just kind of leave it at that. I love that, and you know, for me, I probably have a little different perspective because one of my chief concerns of having mentors like you and Bob Proctor and Mary Morrissey and Cynthia, and I didn't want to put her in there because she's a little bit younger, uh, <laughs> but Ivan Meisner, uh, yeah. you know, Ronaldo, oh, Deepak, you know, Sadhguru, just. Wayne Dyer, who's passed. Yep. If you look at Paul, who talked about, you know, Cynic and, and some of my, you know, Brian Tracy, uh, you yep. know, just just legacy guys, but Bill Walsh, Ma- Matthew, who obviously is living off the legacy of some really great people, Zig Ziglar, Dennis mm-hmm. Waitley, uh, Ty, it, you know, all those years, you know, the legacy of, of what he's carrying with him. His is even further, probably genetically, four generations inherited this protective nature. Chad, you know, with these incredible engineers that crave and gave credibility in their careers to him from the biggest companies, you know, in the engineering space, you know, to change the world, this this technology, by the way, uh, as it goes. I think it's really important that we don't lose, we have a different way of communicating but we don't lose the lessons of history because human nature never changes. And you and I study history. You, you know, I think when we started this, you must have talked about Marcus Aurelius 20 times. Uh, and so I had to go study it to figure out what lessons are going to be lost. Because I would say, uh, you know, Napoleon Hill has had the greatest impact 
on my digital career. Mm -hmm. And I guarantee you, Napoleon Hill had no idea about social media. But Napoleon Hill has had the greatest impact on building my personal brand and all the things that I'm trying to do. And so my takeaway for the day is learn the lessons of the past and apply it to the incredible technology we have today. And yep. you will benefit exponentially as all four of our great guests did today and will do. And as you have transcended, you know, the knowledge that you have, the extreme knowledge into, uh, you know, what we do today, including your masterminds, your, your website, learn.blamebartlett.com, LMM, the, the media, the t- wait till people see you on Office Hours, the TV show and the content that you provide, you bring it like nobody else. So. That's my lesson and takeaway. I'm so grateful as always. I did get a chance to speak to your lovely wife this week, which is a blessing. Yeah. I will tell you, we talk, we're going to do another time space uh, uh, speech. Right. talk. But think about time in this respect. I swear to God, it seems like a week ago we talked to Paul Epstein. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, he, he was our first uh, guest. Yeah. It was an hour ago we talked to Paul Epstein, and I and I was just thinking in my head it was like a month ago I talked to Cynthia, your wife, and it was yesterday. So remember uh, time and space. <laughs> it's, it's just, time is an illusion. We make it what it is. Exactly. I learned so. Bless much. you, my brother. Thank you for sharing my time. You're a blessing. Yeah, my guest is your guest. Yeah. My yeah, time you. is your time. <laughs> I love it. Thank you. Awesome, everyone. Remember to join me tomorrow. Clubhouse uh, Office hours is 5 a.m., Clubhouse 6 a.m. Training is 11 a.m. Pacific time. We have an incredible training uh, tomorrow. You'll love it. I just can't. Uh, let me tell you what it is real quick. So before I just say it's an incredible training, but I've been preparing for this. It is the training on, and of course, it is not in my calendar. Uh, shoot. Matt, come on real quick. Help me out. What is my training on tomorrow? Hello, Maddie. Are you there? You're you're muted. Trust and vet for tomorrow. Oh, my fan knew it was something good. Tomorrow we're going to talk about trust and vet. Matt barely made his bed, so I made him come on. I'm going to teach you how to blend trusting people but vetting the shit out of them. That's what we're talking about tomorrow on training. Blessed as always. Everybody remember, be kind to your future self and do good deeds. Thank you, everyone. Have a great night. Bye-bye.